Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before I introduce our guest for the day, I have a word from our sponsors. You're here because you're looking to grow as a fundraiser. And New Story is today's sponsor because they're looking to hire fundraisers with a growth mindset. This nonprofit organization works to pioneer solutions to end global homelessness. You might have heard about them from their work in 3D printing homes or as a fast company, most innovative company, three-time winner. And now they're looking for you. You can find all the details at newstorycharity.org. That's N-E-W-S-T-O-R-Y-C-H-A-R-I-T-Y.org. NewStoryCharity.org. Hi, welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Olson, and I'm joined today by my co-host and partner in crime, Roy Jones. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Really excited today to uh, to introduce our new friend, uh, Kent Stroman. He, he was first introduced to us by our good friend, Lee Bartell at John 316 Mission in Tulsa. And, you know, we were told that Kent was a different kind of consultant because he offers hands-on advice on fund development. And he's actually got a history and a career of raising those dollars himself, not just, uh, you know, reading a book somewhere, showing it up at a conference uh, session and, and thinking he could hang out a shingle and, and be a consultant at that point. So, you know, Kent's been on the front line of making asks for decades. And his book, Asking About Asking, Mastering the Art of Conversational Fundraising, is really a, a must-read manual for uh, cultivating major gifts. Kent is a CFRE and an AFP master trainer. He's now also um, consulting on board governance, capital campaigns, nonprofit leadership, and really all areas of fund development. Kent, thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you. Hey, it'd be wonderful for us and our listeners if you could take a few minutes and tell us a little bit more about your company, your work, yourself. Just give us a little bit of background. Well, uh, thank you, first of all. And um, let's see, um, my background's in higher education. Actually, I have a background in finance. And I tell people I was institutionalized for 25 years before I escaped and started my own company. But, um, you know, I started the firm in 2001. And I envisioned that the majority of my work would be in the college or university setting. Uh, I've done some work in that space, but uh, I've really had a had opportunity to serve a variety of organizations. My clientele over the years has almost nothing in common. Large, small, young, old, sophisticated, uh, backwards. Um, it's been interesting. There have been kind of two common areas where I've been able to really bring the greatest value. And it's at opposite ends of the bell curve. And so on one hand are those organizations that are um, in perilous times. Um, they realize they need help and they, they have to perform or they'll go away. And uh, when there's that kind of motivation at play, we have a degree of cooperation where we can be extremely helpful. And the other is at the opposite end of the spectrum. And that's those organizations that are in times of great opportunity. They've got big vision and again, dedication, commitment to a cause where failure is not an option. And uh, so our work really falls primarily into, into three main areas. Uh, the first is fundraising with a specialty in large campaigns and major gifts. Um, also, I do a lot of work in the area of board leadership and governance, uh, retreats with boards. In fact, my latest book is titled The Intentional Board 
the subtitle, well, I don't know if I should, should I say this? It's why your board doesn't work and how to fix it. <laughs> and then I've, uh, I've met those boards. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think we've all served on one or maybe escaped one along the way. <laughs> um, and then, then I also do a lot of work in the, in the area of strategy, vision, and goal setting, uh, large strategic goals. So that's kind of the traditional consulting area. And then uh, about eight years ago, I established another business called the Institute for Conversational Fundraising. And under that umbrella, uh, primarily what we do is equip fundraising leaders, whether professionals or volunteers, uh, to really uh, impactfully raise larger gifts. Yeah, I'm just surprised we haven't met before. It's amazing that, you know, the kind, when I got your book and when Lee passed it on to me and I started reading this thing, I said, this guy is practicing what I've been preaching. Um, <laughs> donors hate pitches. Um, they like to have conversations. Um, you know, just tell us what prompted you to write the book. Um, I, I'll tell you, I have made it my frontline fundraising team of nine. Um, this is our January project. And wow. so we are going to be uh, really uh, trying to apply these principles and, and live it. I've read the book twice uh, in the last uh, 60 days, and uh, it just it really has impacted uh, the way I think we need to be making ask or solicitations of supporters. But talk to me about what motivated you to write the book. I've written a few, and I know it takes some motivation. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's for sure. Well, you know, um, I think, Roy, you, you and I probably both know people who, you know, all their life, they knew they were going to write a book. I was not one of those people. In fact, the, uh, the real motivation came from a friend of mine. His name is Jim Whit. Uh, Jim is a management consultant. In fact, he refers to himself as a professional provoker. And <laughs> let me tell you, he's good at what he does. <laughs> But um, I think it was back in probably 2002 or, or 2003, Jim and I were both serving the same dysfunctional client. Mm. And you know how it is. You're, you're at the board meeting. This is back in the day when board meetings were actually in-person exercises. <laughs> um, but we were at a board meeting. And, and you know how it is. The, the real stuff takes place after the board meeting's over. So Jim and I are standing out in the street kind of talking through some of the issues. And Jim asked me this question. He said, have your thoughts been recorded in a book? And that was an instantly an affirmation that Jim didn't know very well because people like me didn't write books, you know. But um, Jim made this comment, which I'll never forget. He said, Kent, you owe it to your audience to leave them with more than just a memory. Mm. And I had never thought about writing as fulfilling an obligation. But with that one powerful statement, Jim planted a thought in my mind and in my heart, which it took another nine years before it actually turned into a book published by an actual publisher. But I, I will tell you, it's, it, it's probably had more impact on me than it has on anybody else. And having written a book, you know that, that uh, the discipline of having to organize your thoughts and find a consistent theme from start to finish rather than changing ideas in the middle of a book. That's kind of a challenge. Uh, but, but I'm forever grateful to, uh, to Jim for uh, stirring my soul that way. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've got a co-author that uh, uh, I think I had about 450 pages of words or, or partial words, but uh, there's a reason I stumbled into uh, 
fun development. Um, it's called dyslexia and ADHD. And, uh, and I had this friend named Andrew Olson that said, I think we could take that and actually put that into English, Roy. And, uh, and that's how we got the first one done. And you so, know, it worked pretty well. <laughs> yeah, good for you guys. That's, that's impressive. Hey, Ken, I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on some of the biggest obstacles that, that fundraisers make in, in making asks and, and, you know, just what's your counsel to, to a new frontline fundraiser to, to really address and kind of push through the fears that they might have? Wow. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned obstacles and um, actually the uh, chapter two in the second edition of my book is material that was not in, chap in, in the first edition. And the whole topic is obstacles to asking. And so what happened is um, as I began speaking and presenting and, and engaging in more uh, broad ways, once the book was published, uh, I had the opportunity to ask literally hundreds of fundraisers across the country, both um, volunteer and pros, uh, what is your number one obstacle to one-on-one -on -one gift solicitation? And I mean, you hear that question, it's pretty specific. It's one-on-one, -on -one, it's asking for a gift and asking, okay, what's your number one obstacle? And, and um, when I got those responses, and by the way, um, the, I, I've continued the research and, and the themes are consistent. So out of that question, there were 33 different themes that emerged and, and uh, your audience is going to be glad to know that we're not going to cover them all today. <laughs> but um, uh, in, in fact, I got to tell you, the most memorable response, I was speaking at a conference in St. Louis. This was charitable gift planners. So, you know, a pretty technical area. I asked the question and I just had a handful of people, you know, spontaneously respond in addition to writing down their answer. And there's one guy, he was uh, about the middle of the row at the way back of the room. And when he said what he said, I wasn't sure that what I heard was what he said. So I asked him to repeat his answer, and he did, and I'm going to share it with you in a minute. But here's the question again. What's your biggest obstacle to successful one-on-one -on -one, um, gift solicitation? His answer was our gift prevention office. <laughs> <laughs> now, I had never heard that term before, but I instantly knew what he was talking about. In fact, earlier in my career, that was my, my job was to help uh, get in the way of gifts taking place. <laughs> but uh, so, so <clears throat> the biggest themes, I, I'm, I'm just going to touch on, I'll, I'll mention four of them. Like I said, there's, there's 33 different themes. The one that I expected to be the greatest wasn't. It was in the top five, but that's fear. And fear is such a big thing. And, and I don't care whether it's your first day on the job or if you've been doing this for life. But really asking somebody for a gift that has two or three more zeros than you've ever solicited before, that'll strike fear in anybody's heart, right? And so, um, you know, one of the big things we focus on is how do we get out of fear so that we can really make big asks uh, that are going to dramatically change the organization. So, so that's one big obstacle, fear. Um, the number one obstacle, the, the number one theme uh, I ended up labeling as difficulty getting in. In fact, I don't even like this phrase, but I'm going to repeat it because it's spoken so often to me when we're in major campaigns and we're asking, you know, um, we, we look at a gift chart and we see a small number of really large gifts. 
that are going to decide whether the campaign succeeds or fails, right? And uh, so I'll ask you, know, who are some people that we should be talking to in this range? And here's the phrase that I hear so often. Like I said, I don't like it, so uh, don't hold this against me. But people say, well, I don't know any of those rich people. I don't know any of those rich people. Well, that language by itself is pretty off-putting, they think. Yep. Um, I don't know any of those, those rich people. And so immediately that tells me that, that I've got people in the room that haven't done a good job of establishing connections with people that they're not naturally affiliated with. And so um, overcoming that, which, by the way, I think is a lifetime exercise, you know, how do we get to know people that we don't already know? You know, I, I don't know if Lee told you about this, but my natural disposition is a hopeless introvert. And so to get to know people I didn't already know initially was a very painful thing because it's just not natural. But it's turned into something that's really fun. And uh, that's one of the things I love to do as I as I work with others is just to equip them on, you know, how to how to meet people how to find something in, in common. And, and frankly, that, that difficulty getting in pairs with another um, of those obstacle areas. And that's what I call a relationship deficit. And usually that's described as, well, so-and-so has given to us before, but we really don't know anything about them. We're not that well connected to them. Well, I mean, they wrote you a check, which is an invitation to get better acquainted, right? That's right. <laughs> so what are we waiting on here? <laughs> Um, and then, then the last one I'll, I'll mention, maybe this is the biggest one, even though it's not the top vote getter, but um, it's mindset. <laughs> and mindset exposes itself when people use uncertain terms to describe the organization's worthiness of receiving large gifts. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I'll ask what's the largest gift you've ever received before. Well, I'm going to make up a number. So $50,000. And so we're embarking on a campaign that calls for a top gift someplace in the range of one to one and a half million dollars. Well, if our past experience is going to frame our outlook going forward, I can already tell you that campaign has no chance for success. Mm. But on the other hand, when we start um, asking why wouldn't someone with great resources want to come alongside and change our community, how are we define that? Maybe a global community. Why wouldn't somebody want to do that? Well, all of a sudden their, their eyes light up and they begin talking in affirmative terms rather than negative terms. So, I mean, those are just a few, but, but to me, those are some really big areas of obstacles that, um, I mean, everybody encounters, I do. Um, and, you know, I've been in this, in this business for decades, uh, but I think a big part of it is, asking herself, is this project worthy of my support? And if the answer is yes, why wouldn't it be worthy of, of another person's support whose pockets just happen to be much, much, much larger than, than mine ever will be? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, your, your point about mindset, while it maybe wasn't the number one listed item, I mean, I, I feel like everything else you, you talked about, you can kind of train people to get mm. beyond, right? Yeah. That mindset piece, that's all about, can we, can we get on the same page with ourselves and, you know, make sure the guy in the mirror is, is, you know, focused on where, where he needs to be. So that it makes total sense that that would be, you know, one of the biggest challenges that people would face. I, I get that a lot. Yeah. You're talking yeah, about mine shared a, a quote with me recently. It says life begins at the end of your comfort zone. <laughs> and I hadn't thought about it that way before, but, but as I analyzed, you know, what, what have been big moments in my life? 
it's been when I came to the end of my comfort zone and, and I didn't comfortably step beyond it. Somebody booted me over a ledge and all of a sudden I found, wow, this thing that I've been so resistant of, this is awesome. <laughs> Kent, one of the obstacles that, of course, we've all wrestled with over the last year mm. uh, is the COVID pandemic. How have some of your other clients responded to that? Um, again, are they still doing face-to-face -face meetings? Have they transitioned to you know uh, more virtual environments like we're in today? Talk to me about what you're seeing and how, how people have overcome that obstacle. Yeah, great. Well, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna come back to how people have overcome it, but I will say I'm sad that there are some who have not. Right. And they've decided that the problems are too great to succeed in fundraising. And then they've gone out and proven themselves correct. <laughs> and whether they go out of business or I'm gonna say lose a generation of philanthropic support, that's one of the ways that people are responding to it. Wow. Uh, fortunately, there are the others who recognize what I'm gonna just share as a principle, Roy, and that is um, that the, in the pandemic, the principles of fundraising are the same. The platform is different. Okay, same principle, different platform. And so what's the theme? What's the reliable go-to when it comes to successful fund fundraising? And it is that we, we know it's all about relationships. And I mean, think about your own experience. And I don't know what degree of lockdown you guys suffered, endured, lived through. But there are certain things that I'm confident you didn't stop doing. There are people you didn't stop connecting with just because you couldn't go outside, right? And I am not a peer to the seven and eight figure donors and philanthropists. I mean, there's, there's no way I could even conjure up a peer status. However, I know people who are peers and that's true in every organization. And so what we know is that the role of the volunteer or the peer is I think even more crucial now when our mobility is limited. You know, so many times people say, you know, I'm, I'm uh, calling or emailing or, or whatever, I'm trying to contact this person and they're not responding. Well, all that tells me is it's just not the right person uh, because Roy, I don't know who it is, but I know that, that you've got a handful of buddies that whenever you call, they're either gonna take the call or respond within a matter of minutes. So you've got that peer relationship with them and everybody has that network. And so, like I said, you know, if I make a call, somebody didn't call me back, I think, well, you know, I might try it twice or three times. I'm a slow learner, but I eventually figure out doing this more isn't going to change it. Mm -hmm. So I need to have Roy call him because Roy's the guy that can't say no to. So that whole relationship thing and, and utilizing volunteers to do what only they can do rather than asking volunteers to do what anybody can do. Um, I think is just even more crucial now than it was back in the olden days called 2019. Wow. I wish you and I had had this uh, conversation 90 days ago. <laughs> uh, I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, um, you know, using referrals and that volunteer network uh, for introductions could have really helped me. <laughs> mm. Where I pretty much, and I, I hate to admit this, um, I didn't get in this business to be a telemarketer but I pretty much have become one this year. And again, I've gotten gifts, but there are zeros missing from those checks. Mm. 
because the relationship turned very transactional on the phone. I like the direction you're headed with capitalizing on relationships you have to build new ones. Well, it's interesting you, you use the term transactional. I think one real point of departure for you and me with what I'm going to call kind of the run of the mill fundraising professional <laughs> is that distinction between transaction and relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, I've become more and more convinced every day that if you seek a transaction and if you do it diligently, you'll get a transaction. It'll be quick. It'll be small. It'll be over. <laughs> but on the other hand, if we seek relationship, I mean, genuinely, sincerely seek relationship. For example, uh, Roy, before you got on the, the uh, call to Andrew and I were just visiting, we find we got something in common. And it's a guy named Andrew Olson, another guy named Andrew Olson. <laughs> um, but there are a lot of reasons why the other Andrew and I interact when we don't have to. You know, that's relationship, right? You interact, interact when you don't have to. Um, but if we seek relationship first, eventually that will lead to a transaction. It takes longer and the transaction is larger, but it's going to be repeated. And usually the repeat is going to have another zero, or it's going to become uh, more significant. And then the repeat over time, the, the lapse between those repeats diminishes. And so again, if we have an opportunity to seek relationship or seek transaction, go for relationship every time. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the sad things I encounter sometimes, we got people in charitable organizations who don't have enough money, excuse me, enough time to raise money. And so they try to transactionalize it. And that puts, it, it saps them of their time and it leaves them with fewer and fewer resources. That's, you know, one of those big things that in our work, we have to go out and challenge. If the leadership of the organization, whether it's board, executive leadership or whatever, if they can't grant enough time to the fundraisers for them to be successful, then their chance of, of being successful organizationally are very dim. So I've, I've, got, a, I've got a point of view on that. It feels to me like we all have enough time. It's about whether or not we prioritize how we spend that time, right? And I don't know if you find this to be true as well, but I find in a lot of conversations with my clients and, and just organizations that I run into on an ongoing basis, wh whether they'll say it this way or not, there's a fear of, of trying to develop an intimate level relationship with donors. And, and more often than not, I, I feel like that's what pushes executives, you know, particularly CEOs who don't see themselves as fundraisers to, you know, just rely on the transaction producing uh, fundraising yeah. activity. Uh, pick that apart for me. Disagree? Agree? Yeah. No, I, I agree for sure. In fact, um, I worked with a guy for a lot of years who was a, an exceptional teller, but he was a terrible asker. <laughs> And I mean, I worked and worked and worked with this guy and eventually worked with him to the point where we actually got a question that he, he agreed that he would ask and had him practice the question. <laughs> and then we get in, in front of the, uh, of the donor and he asked the question. And then before the donor had an opportunity to respond, he started telling them what their response should be. <laughs> <laughs> and it's easy to laugh at that in the other guy, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think one of the, Maybe one of my biggest chores, I have, I have two really big chores when I equip fundraisers. One is to unlearn. You know, if somebody doesn't know anything about fundraising and believes that and, and comes to them, I can equip them in a third of the time <laughs> of somebody who's been poorly trained. 
And most people these days have been poorly trained. I mean, look at what they do to our kids in school. We're selling candy bars, uh, wrapping paper, and cookie dough, right? And that's all transactional. But if we can equip people to think about strategic answers they want to hear and then ask strategic questions and then stop talking and listen, it's amazing how quickly relationship can grow. And the reason it grows so quick is because throughout our society, we're not accustomed, we're not well-practiced to asking meaningful questions and then listening to the other person's heart and then engaging around somebody else's interest rather than trying to push our own agenda on them. Yeah, no, that's that's really on point. I mean, so often we're we're focused on I'm going to listen so that I know what my next point's going to be, right? Um, and and I think you know what you're getting at really is this whole concept that you talk about of, of conversational fundraising, which I think is is just a really eloquent way to put it. And we all know donors and and consumers and individuals just don't like to be pitched. Nobody likes to feel like they're being sold to, right? Whether it's a you know, you're going out to buy a car or you're sitting down to make a meaningful, you know, gift to the charity that you love. Nobody wants to feel like somebody else is one-upping them in the process and, and you know, getting the upper hand on them uh, like a used car salesman. Talk, talk a little bit more about that conversational approach and, and how you coach fundraisers to apply it successfully. Yeah, great question. Man, where do you get all these good questions? <laughs> We pull them out of a hat. From this book (laughs) (laughs) called Asking About Asking. (laughs) Well, I wish I could take credit for it. But uh, I mean, we're surrounded with bad practices, right? So the the whole idea around asking about asking it is that if we're going to be successful in asking for a gift, we have to learn how to not ask for money. So when it's time to ask for money, We're making the right ask in the right time, in the right way. And I mean, I'm sure you guys both picked up on this. Uh, We redefined an ask. So our ask, our ideal ask, is responding to a one-page gift proposal. And there are about maybe a dozen elements on that gift proposal. It's one page. It's really simple. Large print so everybody can read it. Everything on a gift proposal is informed by the donor before we ask for a decision. And you know, the big question is how much money, right? I mean, Roy, I can't tell you, there's no way I can count the number of times people will ask me this question, how much should we ask for? Now, do I look like I know how much you should ask somebody else for? <laughs> and I, I tell them, you know, if I'm making a gift, that's my hardest question to answer it for me, is what should my gift be? So how in the world can I answer it for somebody else? And so to me, that's the prime example of where we make big mistakes. And that is we assume or we guess. And when we assume and when we guess, we have 99 chances out of 100 to get it wrong. And we will. In fact, I hate to admit this. So my wife and I are are blessed with nine grandchildren. Okay. Our first two are twins, twin girls. They're 12 year olds now, but uh, they're not identical twins. But for their entire life, statistically, you would say that I have a 50% chance of getting the right name with the right girl. (laughs) 
Now, I hate to admit it, but I'm not that good. <laughs> and if I can't get it right when the, the odds are one out of two, how in the world do you think we're going to get it right guessing when the odds are one out of 100 or even worse? And so we get out of the guessing game. And one of the things that I love to ask prospective donors is, and I'm just going to voice it this way like I would to them, once we've talked about the project and they know what the price tag is for the entire project, let's say it's a $10 million campaign, we've shared a gift chart with them. So they know what we know. If we're going to win with a $10 million campaign, we got to have a gift someplace in the uh, $2, $3 million range. You know, one of those, a couple more, about half that level and so forth. So anyhow, with that gift chart in hand, the question I love to ask is, at the appropriate time, if you were fully informed and adequately motivated, what range of gifts should we be talking about? Now, I mean, every piece of that question has something specific built into it. The first phrase, at the appropriate time. When I say at the appropriate time, it immediately tells the listener, he's not asking me for a gift right now. Mm -hmm. right? Because people hate to make decisions and they hate to have a big decision sprung on them. So I, at the appropriate time, um, if you had all the information you needed, so I'm fully informed, if you're adequately motivated, my heart was stirred with this project, what range of gift should we be talking about? And I want to ask them for a range because I don't want a number. Two reasons. One is if I get a number, if I ask for a number, that feels like I've really put them on the spot and I'm going to what hold them to that. Right. So if I ask for a range, they're going to tell me a high and a low. And um, I'm not smart enough to figure this out, but I really believe I was God inspired in a meeting early on in my career to, to ask this lady what range. And uh, this was a large campaign. It was over $20 million. And the two numbers she gave me, were $300,000 $500,000. Now, I didn't tell you guys, but my background, I come from rural Western Kansas. Now, either one of those numbers is really big, right? <laughs> the difference between those two numbers is enormous to this old country boy. So she said, you know, her gift will probably be in this range. And I'm so glad I asked her this question. When it comes time, how will you decide? How will you decide? Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. Not because I ask it, but I discovered that's brilliant. So I hadn't asked it before, but I haven't missed asking it since. How will you decide? And here's what she told me. This was an arts project. And she said, you know, my husband and I, we love the arts. We're involved with the organization. We're going to contribute. But we're also very involved in our church, she said. And our church is in the process of relocating. We're going to want to make a gift there, too. She said, I suppose it'll just depend on who talks to us first. Now. What do you do with a comment like that? <laughs> so with that in mind, let me ask you, what's the smallest gift you can ask her for when she said she wants to give between three hundred dollars and $500,000? I mean, if I ask her for $300,000, I'm offending her, right? So I'll give you the good news, bad news, good news. Good news is I asked her if I could have permission to relay her response to the the CEO, she said, yes. So good news is they asked for a gift. Bad news is she didn't give half a million dollars. The good news is she gave a million. Mm. Why did she give a million? I will tell you this. It's not because anybody talked her into it. It's because that's what she wanted to do. And we would never have known what she wanted to do 
if we didn't ask her a question that allowed her to engage her mind in a relationship with something she'd already demonstrated she cared about so that we could come back and ask her for a gift that she wanted to do twice. Why she wanted to do twice, I don't know. But can you imagine what it would have been like if I would have showed up and instead of asking for her opinion, if I had said, how about uh, $250,000? She could have said yes and felt bad, or she could have said no and felt good. And we'd still been a million dollars poor. Right. Wow. That is, uh, it really is inspiring. The thing that just jumps out to me, the process that you lay out of asking questions to get to the ask. For somebody like me, and I'm one of those guys that, that you, you described me a little bit ago, I love to talk. I love to pitch. <laughs> I can give you the benefits of everything. But being intentional, flipping the switch and becoming an interviewer so that you can truly listen. And I suffer from the same problem Andrew uh, outlined. Of course, he's probably describing me um, I'm, of asking questions so that I can answer them. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, or worse yet, I'm asking questions to set up the questions I want to ask three steps from now. I'm guilty of that too. <laughs> and, and that's not listening. And, uh, uh, and I think that's the thing that just jumps out to me in your approach is you make it about the donor, not about the nonprofit or the charity. It's about them, not about us. It's about what they want to do. It's about their priorities. It's about pulling that out of them so that you can get there. And all you have to do is, is receive the gift. Hmm. Um, but this whole concept of teaching people to be good listeners, like you said, a lot of times you have to retrain us, don't you? Oh my. Well, I wish I could claim that I've mastered that myself, but it's an ongoing process. You know, in fact, I'll tell you, um, I don't even remember if this is in the book or not, but one of the things that, that I've kind of crafted is what I call a donor call strategy. And every time we've got a donor call, there's three people that got to be in the room, the prospect, the professional, the pro, and the peer. And so before three of us get in the room, I want two of us to get in the same room, the pro and the peer, and for us to plan on the conversation. We can't plan the answers, but we can plan the question. So I think the two most important things that happen in that planning, first of all, is for us to articulate what is our big question that we have to ask. And if it's to ask for a gift, we've got to have a written gift proposal. And frankly, that's the easy part because it comes late. Usually we want to ask a, um, one big question. So let's just say that the question is, at the appropriate time, would you be receptive to a, a gift proposal for a major gift. So let's say it's our big ask. So you're usually not making that up, that ask up front in the initial meeting that happens Correct. often in a follow-up meeting. Correct. Yeah. I mean, we can, if you want to, we can get in later into, to win that, but, but with every meeting, we've got our big question. And then I also want to plan a fallback question. What if things go poorly and we need to ask a different question? What will that be? And then a fall forward question. What if things exceed our expectations? And, you know, they say, well, yeah, what's next? Right. So anyhow, so we, we know what our big question is. So that's the first crucial thing. The second crucial thing about the plan is for us to know how long the meeting is so that we can ask the question at the right time. What is the right time? And here it is. It's magic. But it's one third of the way into the meeting. So if we've got a one hour meeting, 
when we're 20 minutes into it, and, and Roy, I'm going to pick on you for a minute. If you are doing what comes natural and you're talk, talk, talking, because that's natural. We do that when we're nervous and when we're not prepared enough or not disciplined enough. Right. And if let's say you're the pro and I'm the peer and Andrew is the prospect and we've got a talking competition going on and we're 20 minutes into it. <laughs> and you haven't asked them one question. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. Um, that's my chance to interrupt. I would say, Roy, man, I am just loving the conversation. I'm being generous with that term. <laughs> I'm loving the conversation. But, you know, um, we, we, uh, we told Andrew that we had a really big question we wanted to ask him to, today. And I know you put some thought into a question that really drives to the, the core of his being. Before we get too far along, I'm wondering, would you mind just kind of bouncing that off of Andrew? Let's hear what he has to say. And so you're going to ask that question, right? What Roy's afraid of is that Andrew doesn't have enough information yet to make a good decision. So he's telling him more. Okay. And, and our question is, Andrew, at, at the appropriate time, would you be receptive to a request for a major gift for this project? So what's wrong with the question? I mean, there's nothing wrong. If he says, I need more information, he's going to say, well, I don't know quite enough. Well, we're going to turn Roy loose on you some more. <laughs> but um, usually here's what, what's going to happen. Andrew says, you know, I've got a good overview, but I'm especially interested in blank. And he's interested in one facet on the diamond. Those other facets all make it shine, but we don't need to talk about them. We just need to know what he cares about, what he doesn't know enough about yet. But here's the thing with 20 minutes, now we've got 20 minutes, two thirds of the time where we can be responding to Andrew rather than hoping that he's going to respond to us. Mm. And best case scenario, I mean, if I gave you my template, which I'm glad to do, um, we're set up so that at 55 minutes into the hour, we're done. Mm. And the reason for that is I want to get to the door, get to the elevator, get to whatever mm. our point of departure is because you guys know that's where the richest conversation takes place is all the pressure's off. We think we're done, but then another jewel emerges, right? I call, so that, to, I call that the Columbo close. Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> now, now you kind of, I'm dating myself. I have to explain it to the, the young people on my team, <laughs> but when you, Oh, by the way, yeah. and then go to, go to your point. Yeah, exactly. Roy, I'll link to the, uh, I don't know, whatever I can find online about Columbo so that everybody <laughs> can figure out what that is. <laughs> so anyhow, I mean, when, when, we, when we start with a plan and we practice our plan, it's really easy to execute a plan. Uh, but usually what happens is we get into a, a, a talking marathon because that's the only thing we plan for. And it's amazing how generous people are when we do that. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that oh, really is that the point of that last question that Columbo closes to prove that you listened. Yeah. You know, and if that donor said, well, I'm interested in this facet on the diamond and I'm interested in, in this range, as that meeting closes, you stand up, you start to head out of the restaurant or, you mm -hmm. know, to, to look at them and say, now, now, by the way, I want to make sure I got this right. And you repeat it back to them, yeah. what they told you. I have found they're so excited that somebody actually listened. Yeah. 
you know, and it may be, I'd like to go back and talk to the executive director. I go back and talk to the program manager. Um, if I can do this, um, as if I can come back to you with, with just a simple one page proposal, uh, would you be interested in that? And they're like elated. Yeah. Somebody's finally giving me what I asked for. <laughs> um, exactly. Rather than pitching me. And, yeah. um, you know, there's a difference between, okay, you're an active listener, but then you demonstrate that you actually heard it. And that's where you begin to build that trust, that relationship that you mentioned, Kent, um, uh, which, is, which is so important uh, in moving from transactional to a transformational mm -hmm. gift. Yeah. Well, you know, we're in, in our culture, especially, we're predisposed to knowing things. And we, for whatever reason, we don't like to, to not know something. And so one of the things people tell me is, you know, I just don't feel like I'm prepared yet to, to ask for a gift. What if they ask me something and I don't know the answer? And my response is easy is to say, is to say I don't know. <laughs> I'll find out. How soon would you like me to get back with you? Right. You, now you have a reason for that second meeting or second conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but, but here's what we do. Um, we don't know. And so we, we try to fake it because we think it's somehow humiliating to not know something. And I mean, um, I mean, we're all prey to that, but I, I learned early on, this was in a board setting. Um, I wasn't on the board, but I was responsive to the board as a resource person. And man, I mean, before the board meeting, this board met twice a year. And so, you know, it was like cramming for a final exam every time the board met. And I remember going into that board meeting the first time and I thought, man, I am ready for everything. And I was, except for one thing. <laughs> and so the guy asked the question and I realized I didn't know the answer. And I'm so glad that I said, you know what, John, as soon as you asked that question, my first thought was, man, I ought to know the answer, but I don't. But I know where I can get it. I'll get it and get it back to you. Is tomorrow morning soon enough? And he said, oh, oh, sure. So first thing tomorrow morning, I mean, at breakfast, I found this guy and I brought him the answer. And his response was, you know, thanks. I, I, you didn't really have to do that. And it didn't make that much different. I was just curious. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's the case with a lot of questions. But I want to leave room for questions. And if it's something I don't know, I'm going to apologize for for being so ignorant, I'm going to find out and we're going to both know something that's important to them. And it's like you said before, it's not whether it's important to me or not. If we bring the focus to the person who's making the decisions, that stirs their soul rather than us just trying to persuade people to do something that we think they don't want to do, rather than open the door and explore what they do want to do and then help make it possible for them to do that. And that's good stuff. Kent, thank you so much for your time uh, and for the insights today. I, I, fascinating conversation, and I feel like I learned a ton just in the 45 minutes that we've been together. You know, we've had uh, thousands of, of fundraisers and, and nonprofit executives download uh, our podcast over the last year. In fact, over 50,000. And, uh, you know, if if one of those folks wants, or maybe dozens of them, want to reach out to you um, and, and connect with you or buy your book, uh, what are the best ways for people to reach you? Okay, well, I'll do the easy one. The easiest and fastest way to get my books is to go to Amazon. And if you go to amazon.com and put in my last name, Stroman, 
uh, you can either find me or my son. Okay. And um, his books are probably better than mine. Uh, different field, though. Um, but uh, as far as a personal connection, um, I'm just going to give you my personal cell phone. Um, the number is area code 918-914-2811. 918-914-2811. Or email. It's Kent, K-E-N-T, at conversationalfundraising.com. Awesome. Thank you again for being here today. It was really a, a joy to talk with you. Oh, you're welcome. I really enjoyed the chat. Hope we have a chance to connect again soon. And I got some free consulting advice out of it. <laughs> well, I just hope it's worth more than you paid for it. Oh, oh Kent. Man, I'm going to be following up with you. Thank you so much. We are so honored. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.